0: Well, if you've ever had food poisoning, it's something that you will never forget. I'm not going to get into all the details of what takes place when you have food poisoning, but I will point out that it happens when you eat something that is spoiled. And essentially, what happens is your body goes into rejection mode. It's as though your stomach goes through a 24 hour perch, every single scrap of food is eliminated. And those of you who have, who have experienced this sort of thing you know that those 24 hours don't feel like 24 hours they feel more like 24 days you become dehydrated leads to your exhaustion it leads to your muscles cramping and twitching and yet when all is said and done it's it's almost as though nothing ever happened you you feel fine right? After all of this spoiled food has gotten out of your system, in some cases you feel even better than fine, right? You feel good, oddly enough. And you know, I get it, this might sound odd, but there is a sense, sense in which food poisoning functions like a, a signal or a sign of what confession actually is. So I ask, do you treat confession in the way that your body treats spoiled food? Do you go to God and to others with a determination to get this unconfessed sin out of your heart? That's exactly what we read about here in Psalm 51. That's what we find here. In this passage, King David comes to God and he is eager to confess everything that is on his heart. In fact, I think you'd be hard pressed to find any other passage in the Bible that speaks so candidly about what sin and what confession is. Here, David is in a raw and broken state, pleading with God for forgiveness. He's in the middle of the battle against this food poisoning, if you will, trying to get rid of it. And my hope is that we can learn from his prayer here. So here's what we're going to do tonight. As we look at Psalm 51, we're going to see three reasons that we should confess our sins. And then we'll get practical and look at three ways to confess our sins. And then I want to focus on the fruit that comes with confession. So before we begin, let's just read the psalm. Psalm 51. Here's what we find. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God Behold, you delight in truth and uh, truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So the first reason we must confess sin is that sin destroys. Simply put, sin destroys your character, it destroys your joy, it destroys the community. As we see here, sin destroys character. Even godly men like David, a man after God's own heart, gets caught up in in such heinous sin that even a non-Christian reading about this story would gasp at what David has done. Look at the header of this psalm. It was written as a confession after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Notice the destructive nature of sin only grows in David's heart though. It does not end with his adultery. He continued in his sin for months on end, eventually finding out that Bathsheba is pregnant. And so he decides I'm going to cover up my sin and he has Her husband Uriah killed. Who would have imagined David, the giant killer, would fall into this sort of iniquity? Well, the longer you allow sin to dwell in your heart, the more power you grant it. The longer you try to contain it, the more its momentum gains. And that's exactly what we see with David. He commits adultery, and yet he tries to hide his sin. And as he tries to hide it, his sin, it grows, and it, it musters strength. And what ends up happening is he kills Uriah, one of his most loyal men, in hopes of covering up his own actions. Sin has the power to destroy character, but it also has the the ability to destroy community. Look at the very end of the Psalm here in verses 18 and 19. He says, Do good to Zion and your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight and write sacrifices and burn offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This seems somewhat unrelated to what we're reading about in the Psalm, but it's not. David is praying that God will show kindness to the community of Israel at large because he recognizes that it is his sin that that looms over the entire nation. God is not pleased with Israel's sacrifices as long as Israel's king remains in unrepentant sin. And so David is left praying, God, forgive my sin and offer grace to the entire nation of Israel. And let me point out that the same thing rings true today. When we as individuals walk in sin, it affects the entire community. Just like in David's situation, our sin is often directed at others and it causes rifts in the entire church. Our sin that we commit and we think that is an individual thing, it actually affects the entire community, right? One person's slander turns into another person's bitterness. Adultery always involves more than one person. It's not an individual thing, And it typically spurs on gossip. No sin is in isolation. No individual can keep his or her sin to himself without it affecting the entire community. That's what we see here. Unconfessed sin wreaks havoc on the church by isolating us from community. That's actually something we see here. Not only is David uh, wreaking havoc on the community by by destroying families, but he's actually isolating himself. He's, he's ruining the community of God as he isolates himself. Look at Second Samuel verse or chapter eleven, uh, verse one. This is this is where this whole story begins about David and Bathsheba. In verse one, we read this: In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You see, David's isolation led him to commit the sin with Bathsheba, but then to make things worse, his sin led to further isolation. And this is important for all of us to recognize that when we isolate ourselves, Not only does that lead to sin, but then it it causes us to isolate even further. And that brings a disruption to the people of God. It brings a disruption to the community of God. When we isolate ourselves, and when we commit sin, it brings destruction to God's community. But That's not all. Sin also brings destruction to our joy. This is another reason we confess, because sin destroys our joy. Look in verses 8 and 12. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, that which we assume will offer joy and rest and pleasure causes our bones to be crushed. That's the counterintuitive nature of sin and temptation. What follows behind our our sin is sorrow. It's not joy. John Piper says in When the Darkness Will Not Lift, it may be that part of, of the cause of spiritual depression is cherished sin that we are unwilling to let go. Sin destroys joy. It offers deceptive delights, but it kills in the end. You see, Piper is on to something. Sometimes, maybe we should say often, spiritual depression is caused by sin. It's it's that pride that begins to cripple you when someone brings a critique against you. It's that overwhelming guilt that you sense after, after walking away from a lustful relationship. It's the disappointment you experience after recognizing that attaining what your greedy heart desired did not bring the lasting joy that you thought it would. reason we lack joy often is because we indulge in sin and sin destroys joy. So we need to confess our sin because it's a ability and it's power to wreak destruction on our lives. But the second reason that we must confess our sin is because sin is ultimately directed against God. Every single one of our transgressions, every single aspect of our iniquity is ultimately directed at God himself. Look at verses three and four back in Psalm 51. Notice the language that David uses here when he's talking about his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So though his sin was against both Uriah and Bathsheba, David here is recognizing that in an ultimate sense, his sin is actually against God. In fact, when you read through these verses in Hebrew, it's as though two words show up in bold, the word I and the word you. David is making it abundantly clear. I have sinned against you, O oh God. Against you only have I sinned. But this does lead us to ask a question, like, like, wait a second, is David implying that his sin was not directed at Bathsheba and Uriah? Is he trying to escape blame by saying that his sin was only against God? No, actually, he's doing the exact opposite. He's actually saying that his sins, which were against human beings, were in an ultimate sense directed at the very face of God, the most important individual in the universe. You see, when you commit adultery, yes, you are committing sin against your spouse and against the mistress's spouse. That's true, but you are also breaking God's law in that moment. And for that reason, your sin is not only aimed at at your spouse and your mistress and your mistress's spouse. No, your sin is aimed at God. When David committed murder, yes, he was sinning against that person that he put to death. Yes, he was sinning against that person's loved ones. Yet, in a more significant way, he was sinning against God. And that sin results in his banishment from God's presence. Because all sin is an offense against God himself, our sin leaves us outside of God's presence. That's why in verse 11 of Psalm 51, he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David understands that his sin has has led him outside of the people of God. He's outside of God's presence because of his sin. And so he's left pleading. He's left crying out to God in hope and in desperation that God will not remove him from his presence. We need to confess our sin because it is ultimately directed at God himself. The third reason that we confess our sin is because you cannot, I cannot earn God's favor. We are hopeless apart from God's grace. We cannot earn his favor apart from his mercy. And David, he recognizes this. Notice what he says in verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in a sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You see, David recognizes something. He can't go and and appease God by just offering sacrifices. Nothing he does, nothing you do, nothing I do can bring us into God's presence and, and earn us pardon. The only hope that we have for forgiveness is found in a broken spirit who utterly renounces any chance of earning God's kindness and goodness towards us. That's what we need a spirit of desperation. If you think you can alter God's disposition towards you by something that you bring to the table, then you are deadly mistaken. Because that sort of attitude means that you are void of the gospel and you are proud and you are self-confident. We need to have a humble and a contrite heart in order to achieve God's pardon. We need to recognize it's nothing that we can bring to the table that can earn our forgiveness. It's only a gift from God. But think about it. We so often try to appease God and we try to appease others after we sin. We try to make up for our mistakes. We have this idea that we can ease the debt that we have mounted up upon ourselves. But it's Thanksgiving. And with Thanksgiving comes gluttony for so many of us, right? And we tell ourselves, well, I'll just fast a couple days afterwards. As if... The fast is going to make up somehow for the indulgence in gravy and pie and ice cream, right? Maybe you sleep with a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you tell yourself in the morning, I'm done with this relationship. I'm done with this person. I'm never talking to him. I'm never talking to her ever again. And we think, we suppose that cutting off our connection to that person is going to somehow make amends for our mistakes, Now let me point out, you probably do need to break up with that person. If that's the situation you're in. It probably would be a good idea if you were to fast. But you have to recognize the only way for your sin and your guilt to be removed from you is found outside of yourself. The solution you need is not the fast. It's, it's not severing off the relationship. No, the solution, the ultimate solution you need is granted through the person of Christ. He's the only one who can bring about the solution that we need to bring healing and forgiveness. So those are the reasons we should confess. We confess our sin because it causes destruction, we confess our sin because. Ultimately, all sin is directed against God. And finally, we confess because we cannot earn God's mercy. But now, I want to consider how we are to confess. There's a lot here in this psalm that is practical. We see three different how-tos when it comes to confession. First... When we come to God and we confess our sin, we confess with explicit clarity. This is essential to understand. We don't pretend our sin is no big deal. We don't try to downplay the significance of what we have done. We come to God with utter clarity. Here is what I have done. And David does this very thing throughout the psalm. I mean, look at the intro line to the psalm. This is actually part of the scripture. It's part of the word of God. When you read to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew Bible, those, those lines right there are verses 1 and 2. Like, this is part of the text. And David here is writing in the header, the byline of the psalm, his Explicit confession. You want to know what this psalm is about? It's about the time that Nathan came and talked to me after I had gone and committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's not hiding the reality of his sin from anyone. He's letting everyone in Israel in on this this little secret that he has. He's not trying to cover up his sin for anyone. He's not trying to downplay his iniquity he fully understands the weightiness of his sin. And then look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. So not only is David confessing for his adultery, but now he's recognizing the fact that I need to confess because I killed a man in blood, thirsty, cold vengeance, right? He's just He just goes out and kills this man in order to cover up his sin. And he recognizes this. And so he confesses. He points out his adultery. He points out the fact that he's guilty of murder. He doesn't offer vague apologies. He doesn't downplay the issues at hand. But let's be honest. We do that all the time whether we are confessing to God or whether we are confessing to one another, we so often do so without being completely forthcoming. I mean, think about it. Think about all the times that we make half apologies to one another. Sorry that I hurt you. I didn't mean to. Think about that for a second. Did you or did you not mean to hurt him or her in that moment? I mean, you did not intend for your sarcastic slurs that you were spitting at him all day to hurt him. Is that really what was going on in your heart? Is that really what was taking place in your heart? No, we need to be honest with ourselves. You need to be honest with yourself. You did mean to hurt him. (laughs) That's exactly what you were intending to do. That was your intention. And if your confession is going to mean anything, then you need to come to grips with what is actually taking place in your heart. In fact, I did this very thing to Amanda just a few weeks ago. I did something, I said something that was cutting, and a few minutes later, I don't even remember what I said, but I remember like the aftermath. Right? Right afterwards, I apologized, but I did so with this sort of half-hearted, half-truth apology, right? I said I'm sorry, I didn't mean to come across like that. And that night, I'm like laying in bed and I'm thinking about it, wait, did I mean to come across like that or not? And it wasn't until the next morning that that I was willing to own up to it. But now, I'm coming to Amanda and now I have to apologize for two things. First, what I said last night, I need to be honest, I did mean to hurt you. I did mean that. And I apologize for intending your hurt and your pain. But then I had to apologize for the fact that my first apology wasn't adequate because it wasn't truthful, <laughs> right? I wasn't being forthcoming in the first place. We're so quick to downplay our sin and to to cover it up and to hide it and to pretend it is no big deal. I mean, this happens with sexual sin all the time. After looking at porn for hours on end. you call up accountability partner your, your accountability partner and you say I need prayer I saw something on the internet I shouldn't have seen I mean, notice the lack of transparency in that quote unquote confession I saw something I shouldn't seen meanwhile hours on end, just indulging seeking out whatever his heart desires or craves in that moment After sleeping with your boyfriend, you confess to your small group, we messed up this week. Even in that sort of confession, there's this desire to cover up the actual issue taking place. We messed up this week. Like, uh, I need more than that. What in the world are you even talking about? Were you like an accomplice in like a bank robbery? Like what are you getting at? You messed up this week. Help me out. What actually happened? You see, those are not confessions. They're half-truths. And they're they're half-truths that we hide behind so that the depth of our sin will not actually be exposed. We know that as Christians, we ought to confess. And so we offer these half-hearted, half-truth confessions without letting anyone see the true depth of our heart. But let me point out that you cannot adequately deal with your sin by offering up half-truth, half-heart confessions. God does not want your half-hearted confessions. God wants you to come to him with explicit clarity. Even though he already knows your sin, he is looking for you to come to him in brokenness and humility, just pouring out your heart. Right? Getting it out of you as though it's, it's, it's a body getting the spoiled food from its midst. You need to admit the depth of your sin with real confession. But let me also point out that when you are confessing to an accountability partner, it does not help when you only offer half-truth confessions. You know, your accountability does not know your heart like God does. And so they need you, if they're going to actually offer you any sort of helpful accountability, they need you to be clear and transparent. I mean, think about this for a moment. Let's just say I'm holding a guy accountable. And I find out that he, he hurt his wife because he, he spoke to her in an unkind way. Well, he can tell me two different things. He could tell me, I said something unkind to my wife. I didn't mean to come across the way I did. Or he could say, "I said something unkind to my wife, and I meant it." Well, those are two completely different situations. And like as an accountability partner, I kind of know which, which situation I'm actually dealing with. Do I need to help you not come across like a jerk? or do i need to hold you accountability or hold you accountable to the fact that you are a jerk like which is it which is it those are two different things so let me just point out whether you are confessing to god or to an accountability partner you need to confess your sin with clarity regarding what is going on in your heart and in your mind So next, when it comes to how-tos, how to confess, the next thing I want to point out is that you have to confess without hesitation. This is important. The next aspect of confession that we see here is that we need to come with confession on our lips without any sort of hesitation. So I've already pointed out that Psalm 51 is so helpful and so beautiful because it details David's confession after a horrible act of sin. David does serve as an example of how we can offer clear and helpful confession when we are in the depths of our sin. And yet, I have to point out that David's confession is not perfect. David is not perfect. He was not a perfect man. And we see in this passage that his confession was imperfect. You see, he waited to confess until he was confronted by Nathan. 2 Samuel 12 gives us some insight into what happened when Nathan, the prophet, came to David. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men, In a certain city. The one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he goes on, and it was like a daughter to him. He loved this little lamb. And now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was... Unwilling. That's the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then verse 5 says that David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And in verse 7 Nathan looks at David and he tells him, you are the man. You see, David did not come out with his confession willingly or or quickly. He had to be confronted, right? This This is not Nathan acting like an accountability partner going out to coffee with with David and saying like, "Hey, what's going on right now in your heart?" No, this is this is Nathan coming to David with brute and honest rebuke. He's not asking how things are going. He's saying, "I know how things are going. You need to repent, as our king. You are held to a higher standard. You know better than this." Now, when you read about this, it's tempting to think you know, I need an accountability partner like Nathan in my life. Now, it would help you if you had a Nathan in your life to hold you accountable, to, to tell you when you are faulty, when you're going off track. But accountability only works if you are willing to be open about your life, your struggles, and your sin. You know, ideally, in this situation, David wouldn't have waited for Nathan to come and rebuke him. Repentance ought to take place without any sort of hesitation. David should have been the one initiating his repentance. David should have been the one who was going to Nathan and confessing freely what had happened. When you sin, you should be the one who initiates your own repentance. When you sin, you should be the one who's seeking out the one you've sinned against and seek to resolve the issue. When you sin, you should be seeking out a fellow brother or sister in Christ you need to be initiating that and asking that person to hold you accountable. Don't wait for Nathan to come and rebuke you. You seek out Nathan and confess what you have done. Get on the phone, set up a meeting, and initiate your own confession. Don't wait around to be confronted. Don't wait around to be asked. Take the initiative in your own confession. We should do the same when it comes to our confession to God. Don't wait to be rebuked. Don't wait to hear a sermon that causes you to feel convicted to go to God with confession on your lips. You need to be the one who is constantly initiating your own confession. Instead of waiting around in unconfessed sin, allowing it to fester, and eat away at your conscience, you need to be offering confession freely. As soon as you fall, get the accountability partner on the phone. As soon as you you fall into sin, go to God pleading that he would offer you forgiveness. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn titled, Come Ye Sinners. And in the hymn, he has a verse that reads this. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Wesley is pointing out here that the longer you wait in your unconfessed sin, the less likely you are to come clean with your sin. You need to take initiative. You need to come to God without any sort of hesitation and confess. Now, with all of that said about taking initiative, we also need to recognize that we can learn from David. And when other people come to us with with rebukes, we need to take heart and listen to what they're saying. Sometimes you do need someone else to come to you and offer rebuke. You do need someone else to come alongside you, look into your heart with you, and help you, help you unpack and, and see the sin taking place in your life. We need people to walk alongside us, and that's because we don't always see our own sin with with clarity. And yet other people often see it for us. And so we can learn from David's example. When other people come to you, seek to hear them out. Seek to listen to what they're saying. Seek to repent and respond correctly to their rebuke. Okay, now the final way for us to confess our sin is to confess our sin in light of God's character when it comes to the how-tos of repentance, Psalm 51 provides really great insight on this point. We need to recognize that our God is a God who forgives as we come to Him with confession on our lips. We need to approach Him in light of His character. We need to recognize, like David, That God is is willing to forgive sin. Look at verse 1. As David is pleading with God, he pleads with God and he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Notice his next words. According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David's hope for forgiveness is found in God's character he's confident that god will forgive because he knows who god is he knows about god's character you see this is why we can come to god with utter clarity about our sin this is why we can come to god without hesitation because we know that our god is quick to deliver us he's quick to offer forgiveness and some of you here you need to hear this right now maybe the reason that you're hesitating to confess is because you are believing the lies that God is not willing to forgive you you think you've messed up too many times you think I've, I've fallen in this specific area over and over again there's no way God is going to offer me any forgiveness. And so you hold it in. And the longer you hold it in, the further you find yourself from God. You need to recognize God is a God who is forgiving by his very nature. Don't walk around in your guilt and your shame. If you are hiding in your sin right now as I'm speaking and you feel the guilt mounting up, bring your sin to the light of the gospel. Do you really think that your sin is so wretched that an infinite God with infinite grace on supply cannot cover it? Do you really think that our all-powerful God who died on a cross in order to pay for the penalty of sin is not capable, is not powerful enough to offer you the forgiveness that you need? No sin is too great to receive God's cleansing. God has proved over and over again the mercy and the kindness of his very character. And he's done so in no other place more, more profound than in the person of Jesus. Right? He proved his own propensity to offer forgiveness and that he sent his son in order to die for sin. I mean, what sort of God would do such a thing and then decide to hold back the bounty of his forgiveness after paying such a high price. God is not stingy with his grace. Which leads us to the final point that we need to glean from our passage. Here we see the outcome that results from our confessions. Here's the fruit that comes from our confession. First off, the first fruit we see that comes from confession is that God completely cleanses us from our sin. Like I said, God is not stingy with his grace. He offers cleansing. Look at what we see in verse two. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David recognizes God is able to cleanse. Even the depth of of David's sin. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse nine, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When you plead with God for forgiveness, he offers cleansing. It's as simple as that. And God's forgiveness completely purifies because Jesus' sacrifice was absolutely effective. That's why we can come to God confident that He offers the legitimate cleansing that we need. But let me point out, cleansing is not the only benefit that comes from confessing our sins. There are other fruits that we see here that that come with confession. Throughout this psalm, we find that it is beneficial to your soul to confess to God. Because when you confess, God offers a restoration of joy. Have you ever thought of confession as an enticing thing? Have you ever thought of confession as an enticing thing? Well, you should. Because confession offers us joy. We've already hit on the fact that unconfessed sin destroys joy, but we need to look at the flip side to that same truth. When you confess your sin, God begins to do the work of rebuilding your joy as your sin is destroyed. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy And gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David is showing us that with confession comes a relinquishing of shame and guilt. But not only that, when you confess, You also release the weight that that comes with hiding your sin, right? The turmoil of living in the darkness begins to vanish as you bring your sin to the light. You see, a, a forgiven heart is a joyful heart. And that's because a forgiven heart is a heart that has been restored to God. And we have to remember that God is the fountain of joy, So as you are restored to the fountain of joy, you can then anticipate and and experience true, lasting joy. But as long as you let your sin affect and stand in the way of your relationship with God, the fountain of joy, you are prohibiting your heart from experiencing the joy that you desperately want. That's a dangerous thing, because as long as your sin remains unconfessed, you will be without true joy. And as long as you are without true joy, your soul will search and, and seek after imitations of God's joy that will never leave you satisfied. We pointed this out a few weeks ago. St. Augustine, he says this at the very beginning of his book, "The Confessions." God made us for himself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in him. You are a wandering soul searching for joy and yet you will not find rest. You will not find joy until you find a place with God because God is the bounty of joy. So, treat your sin like your body treats spoiled food. Purge it from your heart. You know, your sin is destroying you and it's far more destructive than spoiled food because sin actually has the power to destroy your soul and not just your body. But, as you purge it from your heart, you will find God's mercies new And fresh every morning. And his joy will begin to flood your heart as your sin departs. That's the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. God, we are so encouraged by your word when we see confessions like this. When we see David coming to you with confidence that you are actually able to forgive. It spurs us on to imitate him. And so I pray that those here who who are feeling the weight of their sin would not allow it to fester in their heart, but instead would, would seek you with an attitude of repentance. And I pray that you would restore their joy as they do come to you and as they seek you in repentance. Lord, we pray all of this in Christ's name because he is able to offer the forgiveness and the joy that we need. Amen.